Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is a book Paul wrote uh, to the church in Corinth with a lot of uh, instruction and correction for them. We're in chapter 11, uh, and Jim will be preaching to us about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal each one eats his own supper, so one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. This morning we are going to be learning how to better practice the sacraments. Um, how many of you, by raising of hands, how many of you grew up in a church where that word was actually used? You, you hear that word, you understand that word, the sacraments, right? If you grew up in a Catholic tradition, most likely you heard that. Uh, within the Catholic tradition, there are seven sacraments. They have those sacraments of initiation, things that are needed to bring you into the church. There are the sacraments, three of those. There are the sacraments of healing, two of those. And then there are what are known as the sacraments of service, two of those as well. Um, if you grew up in a Protestant church, and so how many of you grew up in a church where the word sacrament wasn't used very much? Raise your hand. Yeah, the majority of us not. I didn't grow up in a church that used the word, but they definitely recognized the importance of the practice. Um, the word sacrament uh, literally could mean a number of different things. It's evolved over time, especially since it's like a Latin phrase. Sacra, meaning to devote yourself, and that, that mentum, sacramentum, the mentum is in a particular event. Sometimes the sacraments could be understood as a special ceremony that Christians, if it's a Christian sacrament, that Christians come together to do because it has value or worth or importance. Again, Catholics have seven, Protestants have either two or three, depending upon how you grew up. And a lot of the reasons why we as Protestants okay, have those two is because that we recognize that there is something important that is happening or that is taking place every time someone is baptized, the sacrament of baptism, or every time we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, these are ceremonies that we do. And by the way, when I say ceremony, I don't mean like empty when, when I say ceremony or ritual, I don't mean just mindly going through the motions. But they are things that we 
that we do, even in some way, if you've noticed recently that when we baptize, we're, we're talking about there, there's something that we're doing together. And so as a church now, we are responding to what is happening in the baptistry. So there is someone who is baptizing someone, and then we all join with them to promise to love and to pray for and to, to speak words of exhortation and admonition to that person. Why? Because this is something that the church recognizes Something really important is happening here. Something really special is happening here. But we're also part of a, of a, a group of churches over the last few, say, I don't know, decades or maybe the few hundred years that have become less ritualistic. As Ryan was even preaching about last week, we, we don't really walk through the Lord's Prayer every week. We don't recite the Apostles' Creed. And I'm beginning to wonder um, if there's not something lost. We, we can almost religiously be those people that are constantly asking, well, what do I get out of this? What do I get out of this? Indeed, don't raise your hand on this one. How many of you came to church today with the express reason or with the expressed hope is of wanting to get something out of it? But by the way, part of that, there's nothing wrong with it. And then part of it just kind of fails to recognize that maybe there is something that is happening that can't be reduced to a couple of practical elements or a couple of takeaway pieces. But it's deeper and it, it's richer. Um, Tis the season to receive save the date things in the mail, correct? Have you got these? And so every time we get one, you know, Andrea and I have this ceremony of un unwrapping the mail, and, and so when it comes and we open it up and we see a save the date, the first thing we do is we just go, hey, what are we going to get out of that? You know, it's a wedding, and so we're trying to figure out whether or not, no, we don't do that. Some of you believe that's what we did. I saw it in your faces. You were going, oh yeah, I think that's what they do. No, that's not what we do. It's a ceremony. And honestly, we, we might in the back of our minds go, really, I do not want to, oh, do, how well do we know them, right? I mean, that's true. Is there not something broken in that? What do you, what do you get out of watching someone else get married? So that's interesting. Maybe that's why um, I spent a lot of time uh, Latin to English this week. I don't know if you were doing it at all on your computer, but just Latin to English. And it's interesting that just the word sacra means to devote or to write. That mentum is event. So this devoting event is kind of how the word evolved. But now if you just type in sacramentum, it literally says in English, the word is mystery. Isn't that interesting? And as I, as I thought about that, I thought maybe that's what's so special about baptism is that there's something um, just mysterious that's happening, like a birth. Something that, that I can't understand, that I can't put into terms, that I'm actually invited to be a part of to just sit in wonder and amazement at, of any age. I acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Lord of everything, including me. And I, um, I see him as my savior, the only one that can save me of my sin problem. And then, and then this, is, this is the language that we use. Do you get, 
sure, it's a ceremony, but do you understand the sacramentum, the mystery of, and now I bury you with Christ, and now you are raised to walk a new life. Like that, there should almost be, like we erupted more of like a woo, right? That's what we do when someone gets baptized, but it should almost be more of a collective, right? And that gets lost when you and I walk into gatherings or to meetings. I wonder what I'm going to get from this. I wonder if I'll get anything today. And that's why we got to practice this. That's why it's good for us to just stop and say, there are things that we do every given Sunday that like mold and shape who we are and how we think and how we understand ourselves. And today we're going to be focusing on primarily the Lord's Supper. And then at the very end, hopefully you'll be able to see how even baptism fits into this beautiful um, uh, integration of these two uh, universally recognized sacraments. The recognition of the body and the blood of Christ as we partake of it, as we ingest it, and then the beautiful picture of new life and birth when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ. But we got to begin by trying to have a better understanding of, um, not in terms of what the sacraments are, but the one who anointed or the one who established these sacraments, and they're established by Jesus. And there's a lot of talk about who Jesus is and what parts of Jesus' ministry matter more than the other parts. And by the way, I don't even think all of that is bad. I think Jesus himself does something like that. Jesus doesn't come along, um, do this amazing miracle, John chapter 2, and he turns water into wine and then goes, good night, thank you very much. Okay, we're good. He doesn't do that. John points out this is the first of them. And a lot of scholars like to talk about why that one is the first and what that means and what that symbolizes. But that was the first of, all, of them. Um, people love to talk about in, in these two primary ways. I'm going to kind of milk it down into two things that are wonderful things that Jesus did, important things that Jesus did. And yet, if it was just that, if he did just that, it would have been incomplete. And he says this. And the first thing is, is the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus, I preached on this a few weeks ago, the Word of God, and there's no more Word of God than Jesus Christ, God in flesh, speaking. There's no better Word of God than Jesus speaking. And that teaching of Jesus is valuable and life-giving. And, and so when someone enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you accept Him as Lord, they're, they're following along this idea of what Jesus said to His disciples, that I want you to go out. And I want you to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe or to obey everything that I have commanded you. And that's why we have a confession, not of our sins, but a confession of faith, a confession of allegiance to Jesus, a confession of who Jesus Christ is, born of the Virgin Mary. We could walk through these lists of things in terms of who he is. Why? Because his teaching matters. Because he matters. In, in the book of John, Jesus says the words that he speaks matter, and he describes them in a very powerful and important way. John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus makes this comment about the words that he speaks. These words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And I'm grateful for Jesus' teaching. 
I, I couldn't have understood who he is without him teaching me. And I couldn't have understood so many actions or ideas or beliefs about God or about myself without him teaching me. I never would have been able to look at my enemy after my enemy has hurt me, after my enemy has intentionally wounded me, and went, can I pray for you? I, wouldn't, I, couldn't, I really couldn't. Any of you just kind of look at your enemy and go, wow, I just, I, something in me just wants me to pray. No. I, I, want, um, I want vengeance. I want to get even. That's kind of my natural self. But Jesus teaches me, pray for your enemy. Huh. I'm so grateful for his teaching. I'm so grateful for his teaching about himself because if not, I could easily be seduced into a lot of these great and rather deep and well thought out philosophies about who Jesus Christ is. This wonderful teacher, this one who has a profound insight into the spirituality which is in every single one of us. Like, look how deep that is. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Does that not just sound like deep, like he gets it? But no, Jesus actually says things like, your sins are forgiven. <gasps> Everybody's upset. Jesus says, which is greater for a person to say, your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? Like, which is harder to say? So that you might know that the Son of Man, him, has the power on earth to forgive sins, i.e., I am God. I say to you, pick up your bed and walk. And he picks up his bed and walks. And every, no, there are those with hard hearts. But there are those who are listening to him who say, wow, if he can make that man walk, he has the authority to forgive sins. And now their understanding of who Jesus Christ is fundamentally changes. I love Jesus' teaching, and we should be grateful for Jesus' teaching. On, on Wednesday nights, we gather together, and right now the series that we are working through are not the encounters of Jesus, not the miracles of Jesus, but just the teachings of Jesus, the red letters. And we're going through, and we're trying to learn them so that we might practice them. We're trying to, uh, to understand them so that we might live them. And yet, and I hope you don't think I'm somehow making them smaller. The teachings of Jesus are not enough. Jesus Christ didn't just come and give like a number of really great lessons and sermons and then go, I'm out, and then just kind of retreat off into the wilderness, just kind of live out his golden years. Had Jesus come and taught you everything and then not done ultimately what he came to do, it would not have, it might have helped us here and there. It would not have changed us. It wouldn't have. That's what the Bible teaches. And so now you can understand why the proclamation of the word every week, the confession of our faith every week, the worship of God every week, the fellowship that we join together with every week all have value and importance. And then there is something. Hmm. There is something that then becomes more mysterious, more profound. When we hold in our hands the body and the blood of Jesus and we take it in. 
There's something central, something foundational. I think the reason why the early church, and therefore we practice it every time we come together, remind us who we are. Remind us of our need. I'm, I'm in debt. I have no problem learning from former students. And I just can't shake Michael's words. He preached on, and his name is Jesus. And he, he just kept helping me see. I don't know if he was talking to you, but he was talking to me. Helping me see that I need a Savior. And I thought I knew that I needed a Savior. But every week, to be reminded, hey, Jim, like you know you need a Savior, right? Yeah. Like even though, yeah. And by the way, Jim, like you still need that Savior, right? Like even though you're saved, right? Even though you have been given grace, right? You still need that Savior, right? See, his teaching isn't enough. We, we don't have, this is a good reminder, and I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm indebted to those of you that are, are teachers. Um, I am absolutely grateful for the work that you do, the ministry that you do, the caring that you do. And I don't just, don't just mean for the little bitties. I mean, no, no matter where you're teaching. I, I really am. I'm very grateful for, for learning and for learning more. Arguably, we've probably never been in a time where we have had more information given to us, where the average person had access and the ability to know. And yet, like, have you noticed, like, our problems have not been fixed? Have you noticed that information didn't make us better people? It didn't make us kinder people? It didn't make us more generous people or gentle people or faithful people? In, in some instances, I think there's a good argument to be made that there's almost like a tipping point of information that can be rather detrimental to individuals and to society. Hmm. Jesus came to teach, and his words are spirit and life, and yet there's more. We don't come together every week to celebrate the example of Jesus, at least not the wonderful examples that we see all the time. I'm, I'm very grateful that we have examples of who Jesus Christ is, so I, I, I can know how to live things out. Um, you, you've heard preachers talk about this. Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman, someone that would have been removed, or pushed to the side societally, and yet Jesus talks with her and associates with her, and that, that informs me on how I should approach people. You've heard the sermon of Jesus finding a leper who has been, again, kind of pushed to the margins and nobody really loved him and Jesus had compassion. Jesus had this movement inside of him that stirred his heart, his, his emotions, his thinking, and he reached out and touched this leper and, and, and we're reminded of just, wow, Jesus, who is in fact God, loves and cares and is example after example of Jesus demonstrating love, demonstrating compassion. And not, not just those, Jesus would, would confront those people who um, needed to be confronted. Uh, Jesus tried to redirect those people who thought they had the best of intentions and in the end did not know themselves very well. Um, Jesus, what does, it, what, what does a person need to do in order to inherit eternal life? I, I, don't, I don't think he was trying to trick Jesus. I think he probably thought he already knew the answer. And by the time he's done, when he finds out, when Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me, and he thinks, well, I have too much to do that, too much to lose, 
Even Jesus felt bad for him, was moved for him. So these pictures give me incredible insight into who God is, the examples of Jesus. Even on the night that he was betrayed, as they gathered for the first supper, Jesus takes off his outer cloak and puts on a towel around his waist and gets a basin and begins to wash their feet. As a sign, as an example, if I am your teacher and I do this, then do this for one another. If I am your master and I do this, then do this for one another. And I'm so grateful for those, those examples of who Jesus Christ is. Aren't you? And yet, sometimes those can be overwhelming to me. Sometimes I can walk into an encounter where I know I'm supposed to put a towel around my waist and serve someone, and then I don't. For whatever reason, I'm busy. I don't have the time. Sometimes I didn't even notice. It's like, a, oh, you know what I should have done? Right? But I'm not even there anymore. And then I just feel bad. <laughs> like, sometimes the example of Jesus is not inspiring, but it just seems like it's too much for me to do. Anybody feel like that sometimes? Like, I don't know if I can have that much compassion. I don't know if I can, like, I know I'm supposed to, but how do, you, how, do you, how do you pray for an enemy? How do you touch those that are untouchable? How do you forgive those who have so deeply hurt you? I know I'm, I get this all the time from people, and it's like they're reading my own mind. Like, I know what I'm supposed to do, and I know what Jesus did, but... John chapter 11, verse 36 gives a really cool insight, and I'm using it more as a representative text. Jesus is at the ceremony, which lingers on for days, of the death of his friend Lazarus. And it's in that moment, you know the verse before, verse 36, Jesus wept. And although I don't think many people really understand the complexity of that statement, Jesus wept, because it's, it's not just that somebody had died because he knew what was going to happen. He, he looks at just an entirely broken system and just weeps over it. But notice their response. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him? They, they could somehow see in Jesus Christ. It wasn't, see how he gave such wonderful words of truth? It's, do you see how he loved him? And in reality, if you're really paying attention to what's happening in John 11, they should say, do you see how he seems to just love all of us? How his heart breaks for all of us? For the sisters, Mary and Martha, for the crowds that are weeping and wailing, not recognizing that the resurrection and the life is in their midst? They should say, wow, look at his example. Do you see how much he loves us? And so the example of Christ, as wonderful as it is, as inspiring as it is, as clear of a model as it actually is, really isn't like the design or the plan of God to transform our lives. It's not, look at what Jesus did, and then you try to just copy everything that he did. That's not what the Bible teaches. As much as the, 
whole campaign of WWJD, what would Jesus do? As much as that campaign just had as that model, which by the way, hear me, I'm not saying that to try to model Christ is a bad thing, but to just try and model Christ is not the point. Because there's a lot of people who have never found peace with God who are just trying to learn wisdom from Jesus. And there are lots and lots of people who feel no need for them to find peace with God, to be saved by the work of Jesus Christ, who literally really love and appreciate his compassion. You miss the point. And that's why front and center is the Lord's Supper. Front and center is us recognizing that the teachings of Jesus point to his identity and his purpose. And Jesus describes his purpose. That the examples of Jesus describe very clearly, like if, if God were to put on flesh, what would he do? And he, he heals and he speaks truth. He, he purifies the mind and the heart and the soul. He's bringing all of these things in alignment under who he is as the ultimate king, this kingdom he is establishing. And at that moment, the, the, the peace that holds it all together is what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. The teachings of Jesus and the example of Jesus find their meaning and purpose and celebration and joy and reflection and remembrance in the completed work of Jesus. Everything. And that's what we're about to do. To celebrate the completed work of Jesus Christ. John 19.30 kind of draws it, draws it into attention, draws it to a close. John 19.30 um, Jesus is now on the cross and Jesus is going to make a rather bold statement. Uh, the older I get <laughs> and the more time I spend thinking about and actually uh, saying goodbye to loved ones reminds me of just um, the mystery, the audacity of this statement, unless it's true. And if it is, you just stop and go, wow. 19 verse 30. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, one Greek word, three in English, it is completed, it is finished, it is done. Like I, could, I couldn't imagine ever being able to say that. Like even if you gave me like a really good long running start to my death, I doubt if the last words I would say to my, my wife and to my family and to my close friends, like imagine that we're all there, right? Um, some of you don't get too excited about being there, but I mean, so imagine that you're there. I don't think I could ever say to Andrea, hey, by the way, like I did everything I could do. Wouldn't, wouldn't change a thing, babe. Hey, boys, just wanted to tell you, I got, got nothing left. It's interesting, Jesus didn't on the cross go, oh yeah, by the way, I got one last thing I want to teach you guys, three points, get these down. Uh, at the very end, Jesus says, just think about this for a moment, it is finished. Like, what do you mean it's finished? You mean there's nothing more that you could teach us? Like there's no other example you could give us? 
And Jesus is looking at that moment of his life and he is recognizing, I have, I have now done everything that the Father has asked me to do. And I've done it perfectly. I've, I've given the examples that I would needed to give. I've, I've, I've spoken to everyone that I've needed to speak to. And I am now in this one moment fulfilling, accomplishing. The word in the Greek is this idea of bringing to ultimate maturity. And Jesus says that, not after the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, drop the mic. I don't know what else to say. Raising Lazarus, top that one. No. On the cross. I have done everything that needed to be done. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Is that not amazing? And, and that's what we practice every Sunday. We practice looking at that. Looking at that event and all the events before it. His teachings, his example, rising to a climax in the death of Jesus Christ. And we, we know that it will be um, God confirming the truth of his statements and his example by raising him from the dead and then ascending him on to, on to glory. And all of that is what we come here today to celebrate. And, and that is what Christians do. They, they have this important ceremony in which we actively participate Together to remember what is foundational and what is inspirational and what is sustaining and what is motivating for the rest of our lives. And it's this. The death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. And that's what matters most. But, but how do you, this is the interesting part, how do you practice it? Like, how do you practice it? Again, when we say the word practice for this series, we're, we're not meaning, like, you know, practice it now, and then the rest of your week, that's like game time. This is practice, and then that's, the, that's not what we're describing. The, the practice is getting into the, the habit of, the repetition of doing this in such a way, and so here's the phrase that we use for a lot of things. I think it fits well here that God might be constantly glorified in our lives, that there would be a mutual benefit shared amongst one another, and that our own hearts and that our own minds would find deeper and greater joy and sustenance in who Jesus Christ is and celebrating the fullness of who he is and what he accomplished at the cross. Okay, but how, you didn't answer my question, Jim. How do you practice that? Well, the Apostle Paul, the text that uh, uh, Melissa read, really pointed to a church that needed to practice it better and didn't. And it's interesting, what, G, what, what Paul saw was he saw a church that was selfish, um, that was exclusive, that was able to somehow exist together and not care for one another. And what's funny is, what's funny, what's interesting is, is Paul says, you have a communion problem. I know of churches, actually, let's be honest, there was a time in this church 
where there was divisiveness. Right? You guys remember that time? Some of you do? Now, I remember coming in at that time even to, I don't, I don't remember ever saying, I don't even know if I ever remember thinking, you know what this church needs? This church just needs better communion. That's what Paul would have said, which by the way, most likely just means I was wrong, not as insightful. Paul sees division. Paul sees people not caring for one another and goes, yeah, you got a Lord's Supper problem. We don't. Paul sees it. That's why if Melissa were to continue, I asked her not to, Look at verses 27 through 29 of 1 Corinthians 11. So then, he says in verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11. So then, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, if I just leave it there, I would go, yeah, that's kind of, okay, I grew up in the church. And I remember giving my life to Christ. I remember being obedient. I remember being baptized. I remember taking communion. I remember taking it even the first few times. And I remember even thinking to myself, nobody taught me this. I learned it on my own. I knew that verse. I don't want to drink it in an unworthy manner. And so every time I get, would get the communion, I would stop and I would try to think about all the bad things I did this week. And I would try to be really, really sorry. And then I would try to make sure that I promised God. And at times I would be deeply sorry for how I had lived the previous week. And then I kind of draw a line in the sand, and I, next week's going to be different. It's just going to be different. I don't know why it's going to be different. I don't know how it's going to be different. I just, I feel terrible, and I'm hoping that's going to work. My terrible feeling is going to make me feel better and do better, right? Um, and I'm going to think about the examples of Christ, and I'm going to think about the teachings of Christ. And, and, and so that's what I would do. I would sit there during this time of communion, and I would think about myself, and think about myself, and think about myself. And that's what I thought it meant. To not partake of it in an unworthy manner. Now, now, by the way, there is a part of that that I think can be good. There is a part of it that I think it would be good for you this morning before you eat and drink to ask the question, do I understand what I'm agreeing to here? It's kind of like when I, when I, when I do marriage therapy-ish stuff, talking to couples that are struggling in their marriage, I love to, to have them read their vows again. Hey, before we start talking about how the two of you have wrecked this thing, let's begin by remembering a day in which it was a good. Do you remember your wedding day? Do you remember when it was a good day? Okay, let's, let's start with that. Ready? Let's, let's just kind of walk through the vows. And we would walk, we literally do, we walk through the vows. I, Jim, promise to take you, Andrea, to be my, and I ask them this question, are you still in? Like, the, on the, on the vows, are you still in? And then if they go, yeah, then okay, well, now we can get going. So let's talk about this, right? Because you're in. Every Sunday, when you hold, I get it, it's not a bad thing to go, like I still believe this about him, right? And I still recognize him as my Lord and my Savior, right? And I still recognize that he died to save me from my sin, right? And I'm still committed to following him, right? Because I'm proclaiming the death of the Lord, and the death of the Lord was to redeem me, and I'm a sinner. So for me to just continue in my sin and live a sinful life and eating and drinking on Sunday, something is broken if I'm disconnected. I get that. But it's more than that. What Paul is describing here, and I think we can learn from, 
Now, again, you might not even know much about that 1 Corinthians 11 material in terms of how strange it is. What do you mean people are eating a whole bunch and getting drunk? We serve, we serve grape juice here. Nobody's getting drunk, right? And I guarantee you, nobody's walking away from our communion time and going, wow, that, that second little square. I don't know if you take two. I sometimes take two. Um, I, I, I literally, that, that second one pushed it over for me. I don't think, I don't think I'm ready for life, right? That's not going to happen. But in a day and age when the Lord's Supper was shared in a home with other people gathering together all around, and, and especially those most likely that had wealth were there to get there early, were there to eat, and the others that had to work just to sustain themselves come late, and everybody is already making sure that they got the best part of the potluck. And Paul goes, and you call yourself a church? So I get that part of it is, nothing wrong with it. How do I just stop and reflect on what Christ has done and my awareness of who he is? That, that's good. But part of it is also recognizing there's someone else in the room but you. Like this sermon is tied to, especially to confession, last week's Ryan's message. If you didn't hear it, you got to go back and listen to it. And also the fellowship one. I think the fellowship and then the confession and the Lord's Supper line up so close to, well, actually worship too. Okay, they all line up really closely together. Because Paul goes on to say in verse 26, let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink the cup for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body. That's the examining. Like you do know that you're not the only one here, right? You do know that Jesus Christ has not only made peace with God, but he has made peace for us together, that he is making a new humanity, that the way in which we give true demonstration of the peace that we have with God is the love that we have for one another. And in so, by eating and drinking and celebrating together the work of Christ and the work of Christ, we proclaim his death. We proclaim the purpose why he came. Not to save me, but to make me whole and to help me understand that there's something else that is happening all around me that I now get to be a part of in this incredible kingdom in which God now reigns over. So, it probably is pretty important that not only do you ask some good introspective questions before you eat and drink, but that you also take a look around and recognize what God is doing. I don't feel like I can do much more unless you actually have it in your hands. So I'm going to ask our servers to go back. And I'm going to ask them to bring out for all of us so that we can hold it and think through it. How does baptism fit into this? In, 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 the, in the Catholic Church, there's a lot we can learn. In the Catholic Church, there is this, um, the initiation process. There is the baptismal sacrament. And then there is the, what is known as the confirmation sacrament. But that's a whole other conversation. And then the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting how they see all of these things as initiation into. Because again, going back to us stopping and recognizing what is it that Jesus Christ did to save us. It's not preach the Sermon on the Mount. 
It's not cleanse the lepers. It's not heal the blind man at the pool of Bethesda. It's not raise Lazarus from the dead. It's not. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think. Is there anything that you and I can do to connect us to, to help us participate in what we are about to eat and drink? Think about it. Can you think of anything that you and I can, if it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that makes us part of who we are in Christ, can anybody think of anything that God could give to us as an incredible gift in which we can participate in and be initiated in? Anybody else feeling a little wet? Yeah. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it is you and I being buried with Christ, having our sins, this is what the text says, washed away, and being raised to walk in a new way of living. And that is how baptism and the Lord's Supper naturally come together. So how do we practice it? I'm going to wait until it's completely served, and then I'm going to give us two final thoughts, and then we'll finally be able to take it in. Well, this is one place if I rush through this and everybody doesn't have it with after that text, that would be bad, wouldn't it? Now we wait. We use this phrase. Um, I, I, know, I know Kyle Butler says it. Um, it's, it's a good thing to say whenever we partake. We say, eat and drink well. Because maybe we're not paying attention or maybe we're rushed. But we can practice by, by stopping and reflecting and by doing this well. And so what do we do? I believe everybody now has the bread. And Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it out and he says, this is my body given to you. He takes the cup and, and this is the cup, my blood given for you. His body given, his blood given and so you and I get to stop and to celebrate two things. The first one, remembering what Jesus Christ accomplished. You now, by faith, have peace with God. Is that not incredible? 
And if you wonder, well, how do I know that? Just take a look in your hands. And these draw your mind back to that event. I have a hard time forgiving me. I know you do. I know you have a hard time forgiving yourself. I get it. I have a hard time forgiving myself. I know you do. But take a look at your hands. I just have a hard time believing that God could ever forgive me. I know. And that's why I think it's good for us to celebrate this over and over and over again so that we might be reminded, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. And we take a look at our hands. And when we see the bread and the cup, we remind ourselves of what? We know that we have been forgiven. What Christ has accomplished, and the second thing is what Christ has created. Making in us one new humanity. Everybody got some? Anybody have to show a W-2? Anybody have to like, well, but, but I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man, or I'm a woman, or I'm a... No, everybody gets it. Now, when I say everybody, I mean everybody who's a follower of Jesus Christ gets it. I've been to a mosque, and to show the equality of the room, they, they come in and they just line up and they, they are seated, not by wealth, not by ethnicity, although the women aren't allowed in the room, but that's another story. But they're just, they're lining up and they're lining up and they're lining up and they're lining up. And a Muslim asked me one time, what do you have to represent the, uh, the equality? And I said, bread and wine. Transcends time, what we are about to do. This morning, Morgan prayed for our time together And she was praying for those who had not yet and for those who already have done this. Spans the globe. And by thinking about those things and just finding joy in those things, we practice. So the ceremony that we are about to partake of is as old, older than the church. Let us take the bread remembering what it is, and let us eat well. Let us take the cup, remembering what it has accomplished and created, and drink well. No matter what anybody tells you, that's the best meal you could ever have. pray. God, thank you for bread and wine, for Jesus, for all that he has done, and God, for what he has accomplished and created. All glory and honor, power and praise forever and ever to your name, to the establishment of your church. We give you praise until we see you again face to face. And all God's people said...